there's a couple things that are um, a reality, and uh, they both meet in the same day. And there is a day coming that we intro last night that Peter, Second Peter says that we can hasten. And then, of course, the question comes into play that how could we hasten that day? If the day can be hastened. And last night, we kind of unpack kind of a context for being able to put our hope in that day. Because as I just said, there's two realities that converge at the end of the age in that day. One's good and one's bad. And as human beings and, and everything from movies to TV shows and cartoons to just the practical reality of life, we know that there's some things that are good and some things that are evil. And the human lives have gone on forever and ever and defined, redefined, discounted, or everything in between the reality of good and the reality of evil. If there is a distinction, or how you overcome it, or what it really is. What is the nature of evil for real? You know, you got redefining of evil as just matter, like the Gnostics. They didn't think it was like wicked or sin. They just thought it was not as good as spirit. So, end of the age that we look for is the end of the age of a living God who has both wrath and mercy. And there's a lot of theologies nowadays that discount God's wrath. And how they do that, I mean, really, if you, if you simply look at God's Word, I have, I'm clueless. You know, if you really approach God's Word in a practical way, now, granted, we, we kind of touched on it last night. Of course, that can happen if you redefine the New Testament. Right. If you go from the old and you jump into the new, you antiquate the old, and basically what you're saying is we don't need the old at all. Right. And we just need the new. Because we reinterpret what the new says. And that's the only way you can discount what the Bible calls the wrath of God. Now... Because we're human, and because we do have sin, when we think of the wrath of God, somehow we set ourselves up on His throne and we say, no, if I were God, I wouldn't have wrath. In essence, that's what we do when we deny the wrath of God. We assume the worst of God when we hear the wrath of God. We think He's a power-hungry God sitting on a throne wanting to pour out His wrath. That's how we interpret the wrath of God. It couldn't be further from the truth. And I love that verse in Romans. It says, what if God, I love that, that beginning statement, what if God, willing to make His wrath known, bore with great patience His vessels of wrath, so He could show the riches of His kindness and vessels of mercy? Why? To display to those under His wrath how to get out from under it. In His mercy. God delights in mercy. The Hebrews understood God to be five parts mercy. Slow to anger, gracious, compassionate, quick to forgive, but not pardoning the guilty. That fifth part is an important part. If God really has mercy... Then his fifth part is that he'll relieve those that are oppressed who trust in his mercy. 
And we're all oppressed in some degree as human beings. We've been wronged, we've been rejected, we've been oppressed, we've been harmed, we've been sinned against. So there's coming a day where all oppression will be lifted and the oppressors will be crushed. So we kind of touched on last night, what do we do because we're all guilty of oppressing? We embrace the crushing of the cross in this age. We embrace the the baptism of fire that the Holy Spirit gives us to be a faithful witness ready to lay our life down so that the fire of the day of the Lord won't consume us. James and John, can you drink this cup? Yes, we can. You will. But where you sit in glory, that's up to my Father. And Jesus might have had a little thought in his head too. Uh, you know what? You've got a whole life to live yet to find out what your rewards are going to be. And God, in His burning desire for the human race to come back under His design, will rest at nothing to find the greatest depths of love, I'm kind of quoting a little Mike Bickle, from the greatest amount of people at the deepest levels of love, in the greatest, most, I'm kind of paraphrasing, of course, kindest ways to bring us to our knees. Instead of being angry and scowling and forceful and, and basically unapproachable, arms folded and, and not knowing if he cares or not and thinking he actually likes to punish us. You know, why do we as parents tell our kids this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you? Because we don't want them to misinterpret. We're insecure. We're human beings and not perfect. And we know how we interpret things sometimes. Misinterpret, should I say. So if we misinterpret the day of the Lord, we'll scoff and mock at it. And if we scoff and mock at it, long enough, we won't believe in it. And if we won't believe in it, then we have to find something in this life by our own human ability to sustain us or to... uh, We have to repaint a reality of us bringing in... What Jesus declared, He'll bring it. You see what I mean? Like, if the day of the Lord isn't real before our mind, both the wrath and the mercy of God, then what we have to do to be satisfied with the life before God is get some kind of vision of making this life better than it is to a, unto a state where it, it couldn't be any better. Therefore, it it starts to depend on us to establish righteousness. Now, by faith, we're righteous, right? But we, by the Spirit, through faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. And as we'll see in 2 Peter 3, we want the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells. So there's a difference between actually being able to pursue a life of righteousness by faith that Jesus provided a way through His blood. And it's a whole other thing to come into the righteousness of the kingdom that Jesus will bring when He perfects our bodies and everything else in creation. So, let's look at some scripture to kind of get a context for where in the world Peter is pulling this concept of hastening the day because... You know, they don't pull things out of an empty space vacuum in the air when they quote in the New Testament. And that's actually very, very uh, confidence-breeding because 
what we see is God interacted in history on a timeline with people from generation to generation and age to age, and He's remained the same. He's the Father of light. All throughout the ages, God hasn't changed. All throughout the ages, God has interacted with people. Therefore, when we think of the Old Testament, we think of history. History of a living God interacting with people in history. So when we come to the New Testament, it just becomes a better covenant on better promises, a better hope, a better priesthood. But that same word is used in Peter about suffering. It's a better way to suffer if you do what's right. Peter says that in 1 Peter 3. The actual word for the better covenant, better promises. There's a better way to suffer. It's for doing what's right. Don't suffer for disobeying God. So the new covenant brings in a glorious hope. It brings in a beautiful promise. It brings in a better covenant based on better promises and a better priesthood who will bring it all to pass in the end. The same law that Moses gave is still who God is. And because it's who God is, we could never keep it. But the law doesn't suddenly vanish. The law wasn't evil. The people that were trying to keep it were. And now the people that were trying to keep it that come in alignment with God in the new covenant by the blood of Jesus now get the law written on their heart. That same law. But it comes out of a desire to obey God instead of an imagined ability to observe it. The Israelites imagined they could keep it, and God used that as a token for their stumbling, so they realized God was faithful and they weren't, so they come back to the faithfulness of God. God had all kinds of instruments to try to trip people up to depend on His faithfulness. And He'll continually do that to the end of the age. So that's why He has vessels of mercy and vessels of wrath. Because the vessels of mercy display to those under wrath, again, not to miss, so they don't misinterpret God's wrath. As though God wants them to be under His wrath. They look at people that are under His mercy and they go, they're just like me, I'm just like them, I can have His mercy, I'm running to His mercy. That's what it means to be a witness. But if you lose view of His mercy, and you get some kind of entertainment mentality that you've come into the kingdom, you've come into fullness, you've come into a completion, then what are people witnessing but somebody that's that alienates them, that they feel like they could never be like that. You see, we come across elite and superior. But when we have been touched by God in such a way that we're formed by His mercy, and they see a change in us, and that change causes us to meet them where they're at, and they see weakness in us still. Not perfection, but weakness. Not overt intentional sin, but weakness. And still dealing with sin. But overcoming it more and more because we don't have, we're not under the power of sin. So hastening the day that Peter's talking about, he's talking about hastening the day in a good way, instead of doing what they did in the prophets. Look at Isaiah 5. This is what Peter's talking about. And some of these verses will sound just like it, and you go, oh, that's what Peter's talking about. Isaiah 5, verse 18-21. to 21, It says, Woe to those who drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood, and sin as if with cart ropes, who say, let him make speed, let him hasten his work, 
that we may see it. Let the purpose of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come to pass, that we may know it. They're mocking. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Let them hasten it. Mockers, as we'll see in 2 Peter 3.1. Look at Jeremiah 17.15. Look, they keep saying to me, Where is the word of the Lord? Let it come now. Again, a mocking spirit. Not believing that God can fulfill His promise. Or that God will fulfill His judgments. Both. Ezekiel. Chapter 12, verse 22 and 27. These are all the prophets. Verse 22, Son of man, what is this proverb you people have concerning the land of Israel, saying, The days are long and every vision fails. Verse 27, Son of man, behold, the house of Israel, saying, The vision that he sees is for many years from now. And he prophesies of times far off. You see, there's a mocking spirit that says, well, yeah, Jesus is going to come back, but it's, you know, there's time. It'll be a while yet. There's an urgency to respond. We need to see the the clock winding down fast, the hourglass running out of sand. It is. Because God in His sovereignty has a time frame. He has a time frame of how long He'll let things go on as they are. And because He's patient, He lets things go on as they are, people think they're all, He's altogether one like them, like Psalm 50 says. And that he, he just doesn't really care. And when people have that kind of leisure and luxury mindset of the day of the Lord, they will downplay living a righteous and holy life. Now I understand Romans 6 does say that should we go on sinning that grace may abound? God forbid. How can we? And he asked that question. How can we? Who've been forgiven. Who, who've received grace go on sinning anymore. So, when grace takes hold of your heart, it causes you to obey God. Correct? But it's grace, right? So grace causes us to change our direction, to change our desires, to go the other way. But, if we don't understand grace, we misinterpret grace. It gets greasy, and it gets false, and it gets to be an excuse. Now, a human has to choose to be that way. I understand that. But I just know my own heart. And I can't trust it. I love when the Holy Spirit comes on me. And I know it's Him. And He's doing the work. But I also know the day where I'm sitting in a coffee shop and there's a beehive swarming around my head of bees telling me all kinds of things that I could do. And that's a very real day. Understand that Satan tempts. But guess what? 
Temptation comes from our evil desires, James 1.15 says, that are at war within us. There's an inner battle. There's an inside condition. Though the Holy Spirit is in us, though the grace of God is upon us, though we've been forgiven, there's still a call for repentance and confession and trembling to know that our deceitful heart can go back. And can go back like a sheep, like a dog, I'm sorry, to its vomit, like Second Peter 2 says. It can go back like a swine. We can go back like a swine into the mud after being cleansed. Now, the urgency is coupled with the power of God that protects us by faith. Okay? We don't want to misunderstand that we're all just about to fall into hell. There was a place for Jonathan Edwards' message, if you know what I'm talking about. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Because we can't discount the anger of God. We can't write off the hundreds of places in the Old Testament where it speaks of the anger of God. And, of course, we can't say, well, that's the Old Testament. Because the New speaks of wrath. Okay? So, we just need to contextualize who God is, and where we are in light of His mercy and His wrath. And because God's not sadistic and confusing, we'll know if we seek Him. He'll give clear revelation. He doesn't withhold those who ask. So hastening the day is not choosing a willful ignorance and to mock at the reality that the day is drawing near. The day of great shaking. The day of fire. The day that that they call a furnace in Malachi 4, that will burn away the chaff. So, we got two responses. Either we can pay attention, or we can scoff. And Second Peter covers both. So, walk with me a little bit through Second Peter. Second Peter verse six, uh, chapter 1, verse 16. Look at what Peter does. He recites the transfiguration experience that James and Peter and John had. It's beautiful. Look what Peter saw and in light of what he says. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales. You see, he's building up for chapter 3 when he addresses the mockers. When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just pause and think about that for a minute. The God-man is going to split the sky and put his feet down on this earth once and for all. He is going to appear. He is going to return to the earth. He will finish His work in the earth. He will resurrect the righteous and the wicked. He will defeat the Antichrist. He will toss Him into the lake of fire along with Satan and His angels and very unfortunately, all who agree and align themselves with Him, with Satan and the Antichrist. It was destined that the devil and his fallen angels would go there. It wasn't destined for man. But we can't deny that many will go there from the Scriptures. Very clear that many will go into the lake of fire forever. So what is our response? Look at, look at this. 2 Peter 1, verse 16, we were just reading. Power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. They saw that whiter than any launderer could wash clothes, brilliance of his, his 
his cloak coming off of him and his face and the glorified expression of Jesus, a snapshot of the resurrection that he would attain to and, and his return in glory. Verse 17, For when, we re- when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. What a name for God, the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with Him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word made more sure. The grace of God to give them this vision that Jesus would return. Remember the Jews were thinking... David's coming now to reign, the Messiah like a king forever. But in His mercy, He revealed, after He told them, anyone who will follow Me will take up their cross, because He had said He's going to die and be scorned and, and, and be buried and be raised the third day. And if you want to follow Him, the same route of sanctification and obedience would be yours. So then, to strengthen their faith and give them courage, He says, Come up with me on the... Or first he says, not many days from now, a few of you will see the kingdom come in its power. So he takes them up onto the mountain six days later and they see the transfiguration that Peter just recited. They see Jesus in his glory. Talk about strengthening them to be able to embrace the martyrdom that they all went through. James, beheaded. Peter, crucified upside down. John, exiled to the island of Patmos and nobody knows if he died of old age or whatever. He prepared them with a taste of the glory to come. With a snapshot of the brilliance of the King who could bring all things to pass. Turn it all around, call them up from their graves after they've been martyred and have them reign with Him on thrones judging the tribes of Israel. This is the confidence This is the prophetic word made more sure. And then he says that we do well to pay attention to. So this is the first thing. To to respond to the day of the Lord being hastened, our call is to pay attention or scoff. And this is the pay attention part. He says, you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Finding your way at night. Think of... The, the days of the pioneers when all they had was kerosene lamps and you were out in the winter snow at night and all you could do to find your home was to look for the lamp in the distance and follow all the way until you got to your house and entered the house, opened the door and warmed up under the light of that same lamp and the fireplace. But seeing a lamp in the distance and keep going until you get to the lamp That's the call. They saw the lamp in the distance, Jesus on the mountain. They had the snapshot of what was coming in the distant future for them. And they had a sure word, a prophetic exhortation to keep going until the full day came when He came. And now, look what it says. It says, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Actually, it's kind of a rough translation of what it's actually supposed to say. A better translation of this verse is until the man clothed in white arrives. That's some translations of these words. The ways of working with these words. The morning star. 
is speaking of the man clothed in white. How many Muslims have had visions of the man clothed in white nowadays? Because he's coming. The way he showed himself on the Mount of Transfiguration is what Peter's referring to. So what the translation is actually referring to is when he comes, the man clothed in white will appear on the scenes and it will be unquestionable who he is, lightning across the skies. Every eye will see him and it will be, and every eye will know what to expect from him because they'll know how they live their life. And there'll be no question. There'll be no confusion, no secrets. It'll be shouted from the housetop. All the hearts will be open and bare before Him forever. And He will make His decisions fully and swiftly according to righteousness and wickedness. That's it. That'll be the end of the story. So then Peter says, but know this first, verse 20. All that of all, first of all, no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Wait a minute, it sounds like the brakes came on. He's like going into this exhilarating vision of the prophetic word made more sure of the man in white coming. And he says, but notice this, back to the past instead of back to the future. Back to the present. Back to where you are right now. Warning, alert, alert. No prophecy is a matter of anyone's own interpretation. But then, moved by the Holy Spirit and wrote the Scriptures. He's leading up to a very important point. Important point. And he says this, But false prophets, not the ones that in the verse before spoke and moved from God, it just said in verse 21, they moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you. Very important. And what will these false teachers do among you? They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned, or lied about and changed. And in their greed, for their own desires that they're coupling their teaching to reinforce as okay, in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Do you understand that there is a false teaching in the earth and it comes in thousands of forms now. It's increasing every day. Every day, people get new prophetic words that reveal a new teaching. Whether it's the whole thing or it's this much that shifts the whole thing, it's all false. There's so many false understandings coming up. Can't even list them. They're they're just they're just rampant. Because the last thing we want to hear was what I said last night. That suffering's for our good. That suffering is what secures the fellowship of God and the Holy Spirit in us. That's what Paul's talking about in Philippians three. He's crying out with all his being that he wants to attain to the resurrection of the dead. 
And just before he says that, that was verse 11, and verse 10, he says, that I might know the fellowship of his sufferings, the power of the resurrection, and being conformed to his death. Those things. And the fellowship of his sufferings, think about that. Fellowship means you're doing that with Jesus. He's the only one that suffered alone to lead the way. Now He calls us to suffer with Him. The subtle false teaching is Jesus suffered for us so we don't need to suffer anymore. You see, it's just that much off, but it's going to lead everything else off course. As if your foundation stone was slightly off, the whole building slides with it. That's what happens. With false teaching. Destructive heresies. Even denying. He's surprised. He's saying, even denying the Lord that bought them. He's saying, they're not just small little things that are okay just to let go. These are things that lead to denying the Lord that bought you. He's giving a hard warning here. At the end of his life. He had just said, like Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, here's the beauty of tonight. We're going to hit 2, Tim, or 2 um, Peter here and, and think of Peter's life coming to an end. And we're just going to touch on one verse in 2 Timothy 4 where Paul, just before that verse, had said, I'm coming to the end of my life. And guess what? They both died in the same year, AD 68, under Nero, And guess what? Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. Peter was the apostle to the Jews. And they both died a martyr's death. Could there be a statement there from God about the old and the new covenant? Now key, what was the old covenant? Or what of the old covenant is old. Because there's a covenant that came before Moses that doesn't invalidate, Moses doesn't invalidate a covenant that came before him. And it's called the covenant with Abraham. It's called the everlasting covenant. And it was by faith. Abraham wasn't even a Jew yet. But you see, once he became a Jew, circumcision was a seal of the righteousness by faith to the Jew first. And I know, as Gentiles, again, we want to say it's not fair, so I don't care. But that's not the case with God. It's a litmus test. Will we really understand His mercy? Because that's the point. Okay, so just bring it back to right now. Suffering. It's for Jew and Gentile. The time of Jacob's trouble is the time of the Gentiles' trouble. The time of Jacob's trouble, Jacob's trouble is when men have their hands on their hips like they're giving birth to a child. And they'll be delivered through it. And so will the Gentiles. Why? Because the day of the Lord hastens and comes quickly. And He's going to make a decision between the vessels of mercy and the vessels of wrath. The sheep and the goats. Because He's merciful, He waits. 
And because He's merciful, He hastens His work to make it end suddenly so there's a decision that's actually been made. And we are a vapor. A passing shadow in the night. So to embrace that we're a vapor and to find God's mercy in the midst of our days is to be like Moses in Psalm 90. He said, Oh God, strengthen us so that our works can be established. We might live 70 or 80 years. But waken us with your unfailing love and your joy in the morning and, and, and etc. And Moses recognizes the brevity of life where we all fly away. Not to heaven, but fly away as dust into the wind as we die. That's what he's talking about. Not about going to a heavenly destiny. But he's talking about our weakness and our frailty and how we trust in the faithfulness of God. So Peter and Paul, and now us, the day of the Lord is coming very swiftly. It's drawing near. And there's two responses. We just talked about one. We touched on one. Buying into this mindset that things are okay. Drop down to verse 9 of Second Peter 2. And this is the bridger between the bad hastening and the good hastening for us. The bad outcome. Look at verse 9. All that he was saying about how God knows how to protect or judge comes to a head. Either preserve the faithful or judge the wicked. Look at verse 9. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. He knows those who are righteous and those who are wicked. And He will hold them to His standard, both of mercy and of judgment. And if you are living for God's mercy, He's not unjust to forget the work you've done, the love you've shown to the saints. He will reward you openly. He's able to keep you from temptation, to keep you trusting in His mercy, to keep you believing that there's a reward coming. Those who come to God must believe He is, and He's a faithful reward of those who diligently seek Him. And when you diligently seek Him, you're ready to be sawn in two, like Isaiah, as the verses go on. Or, escape the edge of the sword, but you trust Him, because your life is in His hands. You've already laid it down. So when martyrdom comes, it just seals the deal. So you can keep the unrighteous under punishment because nothing goes unnoticed to him. He knows when people are playing games. He knows both when people wear the religious shell and when people have too high of a mind of themselves and thinking that they're attained to something that they actually haven't. And in His mercy, He wants to expose that now before the time comes. But He's able to hold the unrighteous under judgment because He sees the heart. So He sees the heart and He rewards the heart that loves His mercy. But He sees the heart and He condemns the heart that holds to wickedness. And we can trust Him for that. So 2 Peter 3, walk with me. Peter now says, This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you, in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. 
that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets. The ones we quoted. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel. And the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Continual theme of the New Testament. Our faith built on the prophets and apostles. Apostles. The Jewish prophets and Jewish apostles. That's what our faith is built upon. That's what it says in Ephesians. And that's what it says here. So the prophets of the Old Testament were declaring these days. And Jesus just reemphasized these same days. Didn't reinterpret them. And neither did Paul reinterpret Jesus. The Bible is consistent. God remains the same. God is faithful. He has both wrath and He has mercy. And we're not God, so we can't really understand that rightly. But when we come into fellowship with Him, He reveals the secrets of His heart. He reveals His nature. The knowledge of God aligns us with His purposes. And suddenly it only makes sense that God would be the completion of everything that doesn't match in our mind. Because He's God and we're not. But if we figured out everything and we could spell it out as though it was easy to understand, then we're just starting to walk into false teaching and heresy. Because if we have to squeak up the judgment and the wrath of God to be something that it's not, we're just changing God. And vice versa. If we think that we need to make the mercy of God something better than it is, then we change who God is. But when we let God be God, we let it confront our mind, confront our heart, that He is wrathful and He's merciful, then we fear Him and we put our hope in Him. And when we don't understand Him, when we don't understand that, we give up trying to understand that He's both wrath and mercy. Not in the sense where we think we don't allow Him to reveal that by His Spirit to us. But our intellectual games of trying to, well, you know, God is really, you know, when we, when we start changing who God is, and, and we, we change who God is, if we discount or magnify one of those over the other. They must be attention, because they actually will hold us into a place of dependence. But if they become what they're not, we magnify one or the other, again, we're getting into false teaching. So first of all, he said, in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking. And why are they mocking? Because they're following after their own lust. Mockers will come with their mocking. Because when they hear about the judgment of God, they'll go, I'm fine. God will forgive me. And they'll, they'll throw off God's call for sanctification. For the process. To continue. Somehow we, we graduate the cross. That's the issue. We wear the cap and ground, uh, gown. Like, like we've succeeded. We stepped out of the race if we're in that mindset. Because Jesus was faithful as a son, though He was a son. He learned obedience through the things He suffered and became the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey Him. In another place, Philippians 2, 
he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Hebrews 5, that I quoted, is a verse before about him being a son and learning obedience to things he suffered. He learned to pray with great supplications, knowing that God can save him out from among death. He laid his life down in Gethsemane, in intercession between him and God, recognizing the pain and the anguish that he was about to undergo, wanting to remain under that and not squirm his way out of it. And he learned obedience to the last blood vessel that burst under his sweat as he understood what he was about to undergo in the pain the separation from his father. And he's the pattern. And if we sidestep the cross on any point, we're starting to drift. And if we start to drift and we don't get back in the narrow way, we're going to drift to destruction. Because narrow is the way. And few find it, Jesus said. God in the flesh said, few find it. And I understand from human being vantage point, we think that sounds sadistic and cruel. And it's only because we don't know the depth of our sin and our need. And we don't know the fellowship that comes in suffering death in the flesh through the cross. We haven't gotten past the kind of little bit about, you know, I've got to put my flesh to death humor that we kind of throw around and our uncomfortableness about our issues. But to realize what it leads to, to be a faithful witness, is to go all the way and not love your life even to shrink from death. That, that's the goal of the end of the age. That's where God's bringing this all to pass. And He's so patient to let all that mocking in us be dealt with over a period of time in our life where we can finally come to terms with how we've been mocking Him by thinking we could compromise or thinking we could hold on to our life. And then finally we crumble under all the while what was waiting for us was the mercy of God. Wow. He waits on high to have compassion. He doesn't wait on high with a baseball bat. We have such an idolatrous understanding of Him that we don't even know how to worship and pray in a sustained manner. We have to stir ourselves up. We're weak. But the thing is, we've got to embrace that weakness. We touched on it today in the, in the breakout session. It's the cross, again. It's coming back to our utter weakness and despair that will bring us to a place of delight in God, where God delights in us and we delight in Him. Because the instrument that reminds us of where to go and how to go and who to go is the cross. Amen. All the time. It brings together the mercy and the judgment of God. Jesus died in our place, but Jesus died as our representative. So in other words, that was us hanging on the cross, but when Jesus went into the ground and came up, that was us coming up with Jesus. We and Him. So now He sends the Holy Spirit for what? To give us a taste of what's to come. So we persevere until our body can come to life when He calls us up out of our grave, or 
raptures us up because we're alive when He comes back. Because what the Holy Spirit put in us of longing and desire is what we set our life in order by, and therefore we line up with what it means to hasten the day of the Lord. By not mocking and scoffing, And looking away from the day of the Lord, like an ostrich with its head in the ground, but one that looks away from this age and doesn't count the present suffering something to be matched with the glory that will be revealed, but looks away to what's unseen, longing to be clothed with that body, you know, that body that's never going to wrinkle or go away, that body that's going to be glorious and rapture with experience of worship that you never could even... Imagine, because you you can only taste it now, as great as it is. It looks away to that, and hastens the day of the Lord, because it's looking to the day of the Lord, rather than trembling and and, uh, running from what's coming in the day of the Lord. Because it's under the blood. But being under the blood isn't some kind of instantaneous transaction that completely changes all your blood vessels. It doesn't completely change everything in you. It brings your spirit to life. and connects you with the life of God so that you keep going after Him so that He can do the work of finishing it in the end. So Peter says, the mockers say, where is the promise of His coming? Verse 4. Since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice, or it's literally translated, they are willfully ignorant of this fact. Of what fact? That the heavens existed long ago, and earth was formed out of water and by water, and through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But the present heavens and earth by His word are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But, Do not let this one fact escape your notice. Beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness. Don't be misunderstanding what His patience is saying. He does have wrath, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, Because they will if they persist. He's waiting for you to turn to His mercy. He's sparing vessels of wrath. But they're still vessels of wrath until they become vessels of mercy. He doesn't want you to perish, but all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. In other words, He's going back and forth here now. Okay, He's saying, the day is a thousand years, He's patient. But he doesn't want you to perish because it will come like a thief on those who cast off restraint and mock at the day of the Lord. It will surprise, unaware, all those that are on the face of the earth that have given way to the snare and haven't watched and prayed to stand before the Son of Man with strength. It will come upon them. It will come upon all the earth to test. And the righteous will come forth as gold. But the wicked and those who have forsaken God 
We'll be swept away with the wicked. Like David in the Psalms all say, God, don't sweep me away with the wicked. See if there be any wicked way in me. Why? Because he had just said, don't I hate them with a perfect hatred? God, judge the wicked. Oh, and by the way, make sure I'm not walking in idolatry because then I'm the wicked too. That's what David's saying. He's not saying, oh, I'm sorry, that wasn't walking in love. He's not talking about his judgment. He's agreeing with God's judgment at the end of the age. The Psalms are very prophetic and very much eschatology-laden, end-of-the-age-driven, painting the picture of the hope of restoration, the judgment of the enemies of Israel, and the, the bliss of the age to come. It's speaking of all that. And that's why we worship, to get in touch with the bliss of the age to come, so we forget about living for paltry, stupid things on this earth, and we put it to death, and we look to what's to come. And we give up our bottle, our vial of worship at Jesus' feet like Mary. Because it only makes sense. It's the only wisdom. It's defined by the Maker. It's foolish to give Him anything less than everything. So the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and the works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? He's saying, what kind of people would you be if you're sitting on the stove and the burner gets turned on? You would jump up quickly and run toward your Lord. And he's saying to believers, he's reminding believers what kind of life they should be living if they want to be a part of the good part of the day of the Lord. So he says, what kind of people ought you be in holy conduct and godliness, holy conduct, consecrated lifestyle, completely poured out at Jesus' feet. Godliness, living in light of the fear of the Lord. His eyes are on you, your eyes are only on Him, because you know only He is the one worth worshiping, and He sees everything, and He will give give you an account for your life. So your eyes are on Him. You want to live godly. What happens when you live godly? Anyone who will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That's the test. Do you really want to live godly? It's not for the faint of heart to live godly. Peter had said in verse chapter 1, if I had time to tell you, but I'm telling you right now, is that he said, add to your faith virtue, and virtue knowledge, knowledge self-control, self-control brotherly love, brotherly love, oh wait, back up, self-control, godliness. Then brotherly love with each other, common interest for each other, and then agape, crowning your life with martyrdom. That's it. When godliness is the virtue being built in your life, opposition comes and you run to your brothers and you love them because they're going through the same persecution. First Peter 5, and your brothers, they're being strengthened all over the world. The devil's raging against them. You know, the roaring lion. But He will come after you suffer for a little bit and confirm you and strengthen you. To Him be the glory to the age of the ages. 
So then in 2 Peter 1, when he's saying add to all these things, when godliness comes, like I said, you run to your brothers for fellowship. That's the point of fellowship. You're in the ecclesia based on fellowship around the hope. And your mission is to tell others about that hope at the expense of your martyrdom. Then agape crowns your life. And you're ready. Because the idea of agape in the Greek is to give your desire towards something. To will your life in one direction. And Jesus is the author of agape. He's also the finisher of it. In us. Do you feel this burden of what it is to lay your life down? In view of God's mercy, in view of God's mercy, offer yourself as a living sacrifice. In view of God's mercy, He is feared. With you there is mercy, therefore you are feared. With you there is mercy, therefore I just laughed my way through a life of... With you there is mercy, therefore you are feared. Do you see that tandem that works together? The wrath and the mercy of God. There's no contradiction. There's no contradiction in that. You've got to be pretty arrogant and stubborn in your arrogance to, to incur the wrath of God. Isn't He beautiful? Isn't He worthy to stand before an intercession? To worship for endless hours? To spend together with your brothers around Him, the exalted Lamb of God in your midst. When you come together, may your prayer meetings and your fellowship and your Bible studies erupt into exaltation of the Lamb. If we got a picture of the Lamb on the throne opening the scroll, what would our fellowship groups be? How quickly would we toss aside our insecurities and our differences and go, Jesus, we want to agree with you. How quickly... Would our prayer meetings erupt into the songs of heaven? How quickly would oracles be released from this room when our posture, our heart, gets weak enough to confess and be well contented with its weakness and not despise its weakness and not pretty up its weakness and not sidestep the cross of weakness and come into fellowship with others that are in weakness. Because only by weakness, only when Israel's strength is gone and their bones dried up will He call them out of their graves, Ezekiel 37. And the Gentiles are joined to the same hope. That's us. So He closes with this. Hastening, looking for, verse 12, and hastening the coming of the day of God. Hastening is the word speedo, kind of. Spoido, I think it's not swimsuit. It means to haste or make haste or to desire earnestly. And there's all kinds of debate about, well, we don't really do it. You know, it's Jesus. Yes. But it's us. Yes. We're aligning with His purposes. It's the same idea as He ordained works for us to walk in them. But we've got to walk in them. He ordained the day of the Lord, but we've got to hasten it. He'll bring it to pass, but we've got to hasten it. He's not like patronizing us either. He, he really has a purpose for us to stand in that place where we can actually be ones hastening that day. But it's not by our efforts. It's by our weakness. 
And in our weakness, there's much fruit, and there's much good deeds, and there's much evangelism, and there's much prophesying and praying, but it's all out of giving Him glory, and you're strengthened, and you're inner man, and the Holy Spirit is the one doing the work, and it's meat and drink, because you're looking to the Lamb, and you're eating His flesh, and you're drinking His blood, so He can raise you up in the last day. That is what it's talking about. So then He says, but according to His promise... Verse 13, we are looking for, he just said looking for, now he says looking for, new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for, he's making a point here, looking for, you've set your sights as a watchman. You're living by faith like Habakkuk. I'm going to set up my station like a watchman and see what God has to say. He says, write it down to the one who hears can run. For the one who is coming, translated from the Septuagint, he will come quickly. And it makes it clear it's the end of the age that Habakkuk was talking about in Hebrews 10. The Septuagint, the Old Testament translated into Greek, defines that it's talking about the end of the age. And my righteous one will live by persevering faith. But if he shrinks back, I'll have no pleasure in him. But we are not those who shrink back. But those who persevere the saving of the soul. For faith is the conviction of things unseen. Amen. The evidence of things yet hoped for. Therefore, get ready to get sawn in half or delivered from the mouth of the lion. You don't know. Just be faithful. He'll tell you when you need to know. But stay in prayer because it's coming. Amen. So then he says, you're looking for that finality of design that God created very good in the beginning to come about. Verse 14, Beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found in Him in peace, spotless, blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord salvation. That's the Greek translation. To be is not in there. That's added in italics. The Greek would read, consider or regard the patience of our Lord salvation. The only reason I'm saved is because He's patient. Now, look at how he closes. This is beautiful. He gives a clear exhortation to the place of prayer, and that's what we'll do upon hearing this last phrase. And regard it as salvation, the patience of God. Just as also our beloved brother Paul, in the wisdom given to him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand. It's hard to understand what Paul is talking about. The mystery of the gospel. The mystery of Jew and Gentile. The mystery of lawlessness. The resurrection. The judgment. What is Paul talking about? It's hard to understand the wrath and the mercy of God is what Paul is talking about. So what happens? Look what happens. When you don't understand it, the untaught and unstable distort as they do also the rest of the Scriptures to their own destruction. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, following the steps of the Master, I tell you these things before they happen, so that when they do, you will have hope in Me. They'll cast you out of synagogues and say they're doing a favor to God. I told you these these things before they happen, so you'd, you'd know you were destined for tribulation, is what Jesus was getting at. So Peter says... Be on your guard, lest being carried away by the error of unprincipled men, you fall from your own steadfastness. 
but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the age of ages, is the translation. Actual finally. So all that to say, how do we grow in the grace and knowledge of God? We stand in the place of prayer. We meditate on His Word. We behold both the kindness and severity of God. Kindness to those who abide and severity to those who are cut off. We behold the mystery of the gospel. The obedience of faith to the Gentiles. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The partial, partial hardening to Israel. The spiritual gifts. The schemes of Satan. All these things we don't want to be ignorant of. And in the midst of it all, we look ahead to the mercy and judgment of God. And the mercy that triumphs over judgment to the faithful. So we live our life in generosity, spending it according to the law of liberty, in mercy. Giving ourselves to extend mercy. Looking for that blessed hope. Loving His appearing, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 4. And not being like Demas, who loved this present world, the verse right after. But loving the appearing. In other words, it's the same word. It's agapeo. Setting your desire for His appearing. Longing for His appearing. Because this world is passing and you've lost your life. You find it in the end. So Holy Spirit, I ask right now that You would breathe upon Your people. That they would have a love for the truth and not perish in the delusion of wickedness that's coming. They would love Your appearing. I ask You, God, for your people tonight, that the fear of the Lord will be their treasure, that your mercy would bring them to their knees. I pray you'd show us, Lord, how to be well contented with our weakness, that your power would rest upon us, your grace would be sufficient. Show us how to give up all our self sufficiency, that your grace would be sufficient. We don't want to hinder your grace with our strength. We don't want to hinder your grace with being put together. We want to crumble, and that's my invitation right now. If you're feeling the burden of the Lord, come forward for prayer. Come forward into the aisles and, and crumble before the Lord as the, as the worship begins. This is a time to tremble now. Tremble now, you who fear the Lord. Tremble at His Word. The day of the Lord is coming. And everything will be shaken then. So tremble now that you be part of the unshakable kingdom when He comes.